Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. Today we will be looking at Ephesians 4, 17-24, or at least we'll start looking at that passage. It's a new section, a new topic as we finish the discussion on unity that precedes it, and now what? Of course, everything that preceded even the command for unity in the church was predicated on that one gift, right? Uh, That was the basis for the unity, and that's what he makes very clear earlier on in the book, that we have been granted salvation, and because of salvation, made one person out of the two and the church and and all of that. So what does salvation look like? That's really that's really the I guess topic at hand. Paul has expounded for us and articulated the doctrine of salvation and now we're going to get into the practical application of it. And so as we get into this text today, we could say, and and this really governs this entire section, it's a, a little bit larger of a section, that we as Christians have a duty to live according to the gospel. We've been saved, and that necessitates a change, right? We're supposed to live according to the gospel. We don't expect unbelievers to live according to the gospel, but believers, Christians, should. We've been saved by the gospel. We've been saved to the gospel, and so we need to live according to the gospel. And so as we begin to look into this idea today in verse 17, we see that there is, first of all, a command to live differently. Paul says it this way in the ESV, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Let's just stop right there and dig into this a little bit. So with this command to live differently, we note, first of all, the grammatical nature of the command. Um, One translation, the NIV, the New International Version, translates this word testify as insist. So if we were to use that, now this I say and insist in the Lord. So it gives kind of that force, uh, but it, it doesn't actually carry that force. Um, It could be translated as, I witness in the Lord. I say this and witness in the Lord, followed by a, you may no longer. Uh, That combined forms a command, but there is definitely a command here. It's just a little bit different than commands that we normally see and how they're laid out. But that's just kind of a grammatical note. So there's the grammatical nature of the command, but then the verb that is commanded here has to do with the way that we live. You must no longer walk. Now we've seen this before, uh, and walking here has to do with the way that we live our life. It's not just getting a healthy exercise and regular, uh, regular activity in your life. It's talking about how we live our lives. You must no longer live as you once did. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And that means that you used to walk as the Gentiles did because Gentiles are generally noted. We use that term 
to denote people who are apart from God. That's why you have these these people, uh, gentilic categories, if you will, to use kind of a Hebrew term for that. But we have these gentilic categories because uh, when we talk about people who are God's people versus who are not, the Gentiles are generally seen in scriptural language as not being uh, following the Lord, not loving the Lord, not pursuing the Lord, and yet he has singled out a people. And so he's saying, you used to do that, and now you may no longer do that. They continue to do it, but you have been saved from that. So you must no longer live as you once did. Now, when we are saved by grace, we are transformed. It's not a partial salvation. It is a a total transformation. As one commentator put it, the call to live as a Christian is a call to have a clean break with the past. That's a good way of thinking it. And of course, we have other scriptures that say, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there's really a radical transformation there. That brings us to a third observation, not only the grammatical nature of the command and the the definition, if you will, of, of the verb that is commanded there having to do with the way that we live, But there are only two groups of people that the scripture recognizes, the saved and the unsaved. We've said this before. We'll say it again. It'll come up often. Uh, We said it earlier in the letter, and it won't just come up here. It'll come up in all kinds of places. But we really need to train our minds, especially with all of the input that we get from the world around us and the commentators and all those things, right, where they're trying to tell us that there's lots of different categories to think about, and we've got to somehow be pigeonholed into this or that. There are only two categories, and the scripture is very plain on that. There are the saved, and there are the unsaved. That's it. Skin pigmentation has nothing to do with that. Culture has nothing to do with that. Language has nothing to do with that. Age has nothing to do with that. Gender has nothing to do with that. It's saved or unsaved. You are either on the path that leads to life, or you are on the path that leads to destruction. So we see this difference when Paul says, as the Gentiles do. The, quote, no longer implies a prior reality, uh, and the present active indicative verb, walk, how we live our lives, is repeated for the Gentiles, which comes across as redundant, but gives clear indication that it is an activity in which they are presently engaged. So Gentiles are doing this. You used to do this. And so we're creating those two categories here saying uh, there is a category of Gentile and there's a category of non-Gentile. So we must also address the fact that the scriptures uh, address another group as distinct from the Gentiles and yet also distinct from believers. And that, of course, would be the Jewish people. Now, I don't want you to get in any confusion here about what I just said previously. Right now, there are two groups of people. There are saved and unsaved. So if you are a Jewish person, and it has to do with calling and uh, our culture, language, and those type of things, if you are Jewish today, uh, you are not thought of as a third category. You either believe or you don't believe the gospel, right? And a Jewish person who believes the gospel and embraces the gospel is actually a part of the church. And so they are not still Jewish people and yet distinct within the church. They are 
they are believers. They are Christians. And that's why Paul can say and does say in other letters, there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? So he, he makes that clear. But when we say that there is a different category, we're saying that just as in the past there was Jew and Gentile, now it's Gentile and Christian, there, the, the, the Jewish people still exist, okay? And they occupy an interesting position in redemptive history because God had singled them out uh, for reasons that are known only to him by his grace and his mercy. He called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and blessed him and then blessed him with Isaac and then through Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob, you know, the nation of Israel. And and it was from the nation of Israel that the king would come, that Christ ultimately came from that nation. They were the uh, protectors. They were the, the ones who held on to the revelation of God. They were the custodians of it for a time. And there's a lot that's going into that because at this day and age, in this stage of history, uh, they are no longer the custodians of God's revelation that has been turned over to the church. Uh, and they have denied the Savior who bought them. They have rejected that. They are still looking today, if you go over to Israel and you were to talk to a Jewish person, uh, they are. They would say that they are still looking for a Savior. They do not recognize that the Savior has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's worth having that discussion. And this comes into play not because that they are a radically different group, but because they are still going to influence the church negatively in the form of Judaism, which is something that Paul is going to combat, uh, the heresy of Judaism, which recognizes Christ as the Messiah, but still insists on the observance of the law for salvation. They're, the early church is going to have to combat that, and they're going to have to be able to say, no, that's not the true gospel. In fact, that was one of the reasons that the Jerusalem Council convened was to talk about that doctrine. And, and the only reason that I bring this up is, and, and to nuance really, you know, the two main categories, but now kind of this third category that we at least need to talk about, uh, is, is to really provide that nuance. And, and just as I've said before, even though we're nuancing this other category presently, the, the category of the Jewish people fall into the unsaved, saved versus unsaved. So now we're back to our two. Okay. But we bring them up because they do influence the church. They actually still influence the church today, which is, I, I think, almost inconceivable, if I can use that word. Uh, it, it really is strange to me because it was so soundly put down by the apostles and by Paul. He was very, very adamant that this was wrong. And then we have such clear teaching like Acts chapter 10 with regard to dietary laws when Peter's up on the housetop and he sees the vision and, and you know, the sheet is let down from heaven and all kinds of animals and creeping things are on it, clean and unclean. And the Lord says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then we understand and we're even given explicit commentary that that now the, the Jewish law with regard to uh, diet restrictions and those type of things, the legal aspect of the law has been abolished. And then he says, it's not only as the law been abolished that way or, you know, been fulfilled and it's no longer in effect, 
but also that's to show and be illustrative of the fact that the the gospel goes to everyone, to the Gentiles as well, who eat those things. And yet today, we still have people who can uh, abide by dietary restrictions. There are whole movements uh, under the broad umbrella of Christianity and evangelicalism who place themselves under these really, you know, I would say it's not arbitrary because it's found in the scripture, but they have a misunderstanding. So they place themselves under that uh, Seventh-day Adventists will not eat shellfish, for instance, and by the fact of their title, they are uh, Sabbatarians, Seventh Day, uh, and so they hold to a strict observance of the Jewish Sabbath, which the Sabbath occurred on the seventh day of the week, not the first day of the week. And so in our modern calendar, the Sabbath is rightly understood as being Saturday, and so they hold their day of worship on Saturday. That is according to Jewish law that they do that. Well, why does the Christian church normally uh, meet on Sunday? Because Sunday was the first day of the week. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? Well, we do that in honor of the fact uh, that we have a longstanding tradition, which is articulated to us in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, that they met on the first day of the week. (laughs) Uh, But what significant thing happened on the first day of the week early on before the church even started? Well, Christ was crucified on Friday on the Passover, and he was raised from the dead three days later. That's a discussion for the Jewish calendar and how that works, you know, how the day begins at sundown. So, you know, all that other stuff. So anyway, by the third day, the morning of the third day, he raises from the dead. And what we have is we have an ongoing 2000 year celebration of the resurrection from the dead every time the church assembles. So that's why we're not Sabbatarians, because that, that you know, the, the rest principle may still stand, but the legal binding nature of, of holding the Sabbath uh, strictly on that day has definitely done away with, because the Lord is, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Sabbath. He is our rest. Uh, but then that brings into discussion a whole nother group of people who are ultra legalistic within uh, the reformed movement who hold to a radical, very, very radical uh, interpretation of the Sabbath law. It's very pharisaical, actually, and I have no problem saying that. I've interacted with many people uh, who hold to this, and yet they move it from Saturday, so they rightly understood that we're not bound by that. But every other pharisaical interpretation of the Sabbath, they just move to Sunday. And so they have a misunderstanding of, of grace as well. And so uh, I say that because it still does influence the church today. So I know we've kind of rabbit trailed a little bit on that, but it's worth bringing up because not only did it affect the early church, it still affects us today. And the reason we talk about it is because I, I believe the scriptures are very, very clear. And, you know, that it definitely is a discussion for another time. But God has a plan for national Israel. He has not done away with them. Uh, that's a huge discussion uh, that really won't come up under any one scripture, though it will come up a great deal when we go through the book of Romans, especially Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, huge discourse on national Israel. And and Paul explicitly says, I mean, he's writing that that letter in the 60s, you know, so 30 years roughly after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ and the church has been established, he says, 
you know, has God, you know, done away with the Jews? Has he done with them? And he says, by no means, he uses that really strong negation, meganoita, that he uses so often in the book of Romans. And he says, I wish that I were, uh, I could trade places with them. I wish that they could understand. But he says that God has a plan for them. He makes that very clear there. And so we bring them up as a third category, even though today they exist as the category of the unsaved. I believe that God has a plan for them that he has articulated both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that that was quite a long rabbit trail there. But when we talk about uh, groups of people in the scriptures, there are definitely only two today, but we have to at least talk about that third group that does fit under the category of the unsaved. So wrapping up this first point, then we see that there is a command to live differently. And the command says you need to be able to identify that you lived in a different way in the past. You also need to be able to identify the fact that there are people currently living that way today and you have been called to something different. You have been called to not do that, but then what are you called to do? Well, we'll get into that in the future verses because of our time, but before we even get into what we are called to do, he's going to go into a discourse on what Gentilic living actually is, what Gentile life looks like. And that's actually going to take up the discussion for the next several verses. And then by the time we get to verse 20 and really 21, 22, we get a command about the new life. And then that actually, the new life will be even more articulated in the next section, starting in verse 25. So we'll end it there today. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.